This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm your host and Three Pillars Chief Evangelist, Scott Barrow, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Kevin Philpott. Our topic is how to build a culture of agile thinking. Currently, Kevin is Director of Product Design at Pi Insurance, a venture-backed insure tech startup that has raised more than $600 million in funding since 2017. Kevin has been with the company since its inception and is now responsible for all B2B, B2C, and enterprise digital interfaces. Pi's online commercial auto insurance process was recently selected by Ford to power its own insurance offering. Early in Kevin's time at Pi, he led the creation of a product design practice from zero to one, a concept we'll be coming back to, before scaling to it to a multidisciplinary design and research team. Kevin has also held senior product design roles at companies including Rapid Finance, which is part of the Quicken Loans family of companies, and Geico. His experience at small, medium, and enterprise-sized companies has yielded him keen insight into the agile thinking challenges present in each of these types of companies. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome to the Innovation Engine. Thank you. Thank you. I really, can you just walk around with me and like introduce me like that, like all the time, like in the <laughs> office? Or I get a copy. You, that'd, that'd a, be great. A personal, hype, a personal hype man. Yes. Yeah. I, I totally yeah, get it. It sounds so much more impressive when it's put together that way, right? You know what we should do? At the start of these things, they should have like your spouse introduce you. That'd be, it'd be quite different, I feel like. Kevin is quasi capable. <laughs> Well, well, and, and during the intro, I'm going to get, I'm going to move us into our topic, but yeah, I mean, I, I love your range of experience because I think, um, and you know, recently I've had guests on talking about that, uh, this idea that agile has really evolved on one half of the equation. Um, the agile manifesto really laid out two parts. One, a desire for the people who build software to get closer to the customer and closer to solving the problems. Um, and then two, to have this kind of iterative approach to how they execute on software. Well, the iterative approach has taken off. And, and I think nowadays everyone thinks of Agile as the iterative execution of a fairly fixed target. But, but when you're taking products from zero to one, it's that other side of the Agile equation. How do we get closer to the market? Um, that that really feels like it, it it's been it's been lacking. So I'm hoping a lot of our conversation will focus on on that challenge. And so you know, since so many in the industry do over-index on the engineering, the execution. Um, again, we're talking about two week sprints. How do you think about agile and and the promise of agile uh, when you talk about agile thinking? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things that I kind of zone in on when it comes to agile thinking. Uh, one is outcomes over outputs and it's it's that's just so powerful it, and there's so many places that are still focused on hey we delivered this feature or this product right and and especially when you're in a smaller company you're really trying to deliver these small increments and measure if they delivered the outcomes you intended right and that really gets back to what you're talking about about focusing on the customer when you start like real zero to one, you can potentially, there might be existing uh, third-party market data out there that you could leverage. Uh, but sometimes you're really going to be starting at, at zero, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. each one of these little things that you do is a test. 
and you're measuring that outcome, you're trying to see if your hypothesis for the market is accurate or, or not, right? So I think that is fundamental in terms of how agile can be applied in that manner, right? Uh, I, I think you'll also sometimes get some warning flags in organizations if, if things aren't working uh, that way, uh, where <laughs> my favorite non-favorite word is table stakes. Like, why are we doing this? It's table stakes, right? What what do we expect to get out of this, right? What How do we measure this, right? Even if it's, yes, we know we need it, like making the attempt to understand what you'll get out of it and then testing that hypothesis is fundamentally uh, important uh, to agile thinking. I think the other one is think big, start small, learn fast, right? And so... Thinking big means you just have a vision for where you want to go with this, right? Uh, and there's this interesting concept with Agile where I think sometimes people feel like it's all about, oh, we're only thinking two weeks ahead, right? And it's really not about that, right? You're you're thinking much longer and broader, but what you're doing is you're breaking that down into the first increment, right? So that to me, I think, is is fundamental in Agile thinking. And it doesn't... It, doesn't just apply to software, right? You mm -hmm. actually have to get the buy-in from your executive leadership to be thinking in this manner as well, too. To me, it's really a lot about testing, coming up with hypotheses and testing your assumptions, right? And that's what you're continuously trying to do. And that's where the learn fast piece of this comes in, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably worth calling out that I don't think it's always black and white either, right? I don't think you're always working in these small little increments. There are times in companies where, I don't know, you, you decide you're going to buy instead of build and implement a piece of software, you can't implement half of it, right? It's going to take you a while to do it, right? Or if you're building an online account, you're not just going to give them the login, right? So there are times where you'll, you'll, you might build it out incre incrementally. You might even test it internally because you can't you know, launch half a product to the wild, right? But I think that's a key piece of this as well, too. It's not quite as black and white, I think, as some people think of this. Well, and, and, and I've thought about it, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, because I, I've said it many times, like, the interesting thing about new product ideas is that you have to have enough bravado and faith in your idea to push through the things that don't matter, that, that, are, that are imagined obstacles. And, but also you have to have the humility and the, the openness to hear the things that maybe maybe you have a part of your hypothesis or part of your thesis on this product and on this market is incorrect, and and balancing the two is is such an interesting and challenging thing to do for organizations or for individuals. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's why, like, if you if if you can build that culture in your organization that is really legitimately test and learn, it also brings down people's defensiveness, right? If you focus on that, right? Because even if there's a failure, you're not calling it a failure, right? It's it's a learning opportunity. So I, Kevin, think that if we do X or Y, it's going to increase our conversion rate by 5%, right? But we're all in this test and learn boat together. Turns out it doesn't work. Great, we learned something. What is it that happened with that, right? And it, it takes people off um, that kind of I was right or, or you was wrong. And, and we're all just trying to figure this out together. That's right. That's right. It moves ideas from individuals into the sphere of like, okay, let's test the high quality hypotheses um, and, and 
you know, it doesn't really matter where they had originated from. You put right. them into the process and, and we, we learn something. And I had a, an interesting moment. Um, I was, I was at one of our community of practice meetings and we were talking about how we need a culture of failure that celebrates failure. And I was like, I'm sorry, actually, I'm not interested in celebrating failure. Failure is failure. Let's not get it wrong. However, failure harnessed for learning. So the, so in other words, another way to say this is the only failure we can have is failure without learning. If we learn nothing from it, then we really wasted the failure. So there is a form of failure that I'm uninterested in. Um, I, I'm not going to give anyone a prize for failing. <laughs> like, sorry, but, it, but for learning, I will. Um, absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important. I think one of the interesting things about what you're bringing up here around real failure, where you don't learn, is part of it is not documenting what an organization has done in the past. Because I think one of the silent killers of mm. failing because you didn't learn is like, no one remembers that we ran that test a year ago, right? Uh, and it doesn't have to be like voluminous, right? But so, uh, keeping a collection of the tests that you've done, right? And looking back beyond just the last couple of months, I think really helps avoid that pitfall because you're you're a thousand percent right on that. Mm-hmm. So so how do you see, since, since you've largely led uh, design teams uh, or been involved in design, how do you think about uh, user experience and in terms of this agile thinking that we're talking about? What is its role? Um, and how do you recommend that companies ensure that that UX has the right seat at the table when it comes to to conceptualizing new ideas, taking them from zero to one and beyond. Yeah, so this is something I'm super passionate about because I feel right now there's like a little bit of a um, almost a skew that agile thinking is about product management and or engineering, right? And that's where it lives, right? But agile thinking is everywhere. And user experience in particular can play a massive role in helping an organization um, be agile. One way that UX can do this is through conducting discovery research, right? And that can happen outside of sprints, right? You don't have to have a time box into two weeks, right? Often you know something's come up quite a bit in the future, right? And you can get ahead of that and do some discovery research. And what do I mean by discovery research? Well, I mean the opposite to, you know, you've built out your product, you've got your prototype, you're going to test that before it goes out, right? That's really all about doing things right. Mm -hmm. What discovery research is all all about is doing the right things. Like, are we even in the right ballpark with what this product is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, especially in smaller companies when you're going from zero to one and you don't know that much, that type of exploratory early stage research is really fundamental to make sure that you're putting your company in the right direction, right? Mm -hmm. nobody else in the organization that is doing this type of research, right? So I think that is one area where UX can really help the company in Excel, right? I think the other thing there is UX can help the organization set that aspirational mission or vision. Like people, I think, think that when companies start, they've got this like rock hard mission and vision. Often the founders are still kind of figuring that out and refining it, right? So in the early days- Whether or not they admit it. I mean, obviously, none of them are doing it, right? But between you and I, this private conversation, some of them are, right? right. Um, so so I, think, I think that's very important. I think another thing is UX can be involved and push for measurement. Web analytics is another key piece of this. Again, mm-hmm. we talked about testing and learning, right? But like UX can really get in there, help form the hypotheses with 
product and, and the rest of the business and, and get deeper. Because sometimes I think what you see is you have these CRM systems in the early stage of a company um, and they have key milestones in the experience kind of called out. And you see that, oh, the number of people that start the application process uh, drops by 50% by the time they actually purchase with us. But web analytics can be your friend to kind of really narrow in on where in all of those pages online is that drop-off happening. And when mm-hmm. you find that and you see that page, that's still not enough because you know there's a drop-off, but you don't know why there was a drop-off. So that's mm-hmm. where kind of qualitative research can really come in to give you hypotheses about what the motivations are so that you can actually influence that behavior going forward. And I, I think that's so key, though, and, and, and I, I want to stay on this point for just a second, that the user experience is not simply wireframes attached to user stories delivered to engineering. You're talking about use at UX as, as that user research, that mental, that mental modeling uh, that goes into products and I'm trying to align the product's mental model to the, to the user or the customer. If it's a B2B product, then you've got both personae to, to think about. Um, but you're talking about UX in that more expanded, expanded sense. Um, and, and that's a much more strategic asset than beautiful pixels necessarily do i do i am i reading you right yeah you know often ux is kind of split into the bucket of design or research right and to me the research part is the most important part because your designs might not do what they're supposed to do if you don't do that Uh, it is kind of funny because you know if you if you look at how a lot of teams scale out UX. They typically do it in a ratio of about four or five UX designers to one researcher, right? Mm-hmm. That could be split in terms of time between people, right? But let's imagine it's it's one full-time FTE, right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, when you're starting the company, you need to spend, you need to flip that a little bit and spend more time on on the research part as best you can, right? Like, I'm not naive. I'm not like, you know, you've got your 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 seed round decision coming up and I'm not sitting there going like, let's do a 12-month ethnographic research study, right? But like, you do need to spend more time than you think figuring out what's going on in your market uh, before you design something. Well, and, and I suspect, and tell me if I'm wrong, but given that you've worked at these different sized companies, that probably one of the things that you bring to the table is, is that is that judgment on how to tune to the resources you have, get the most out of early early stage research, and and really turn the 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 old paradigm of requirements coming from on high to the engineering team to to affect and UX is is you know a road bump uh, a speed bump along the way to a more bi directional conversation around. Okay, here's our hypothesis on the market. Here's what we're finding out, and then you're really having that that early stage conversation on how much of this is right, how much of this are we curious about, how much is proven wrong. Um, am I am I on the on the right track? Like that's that's one of the things that you're doing is is tuning that that um, that ratio in the roles yeah, that you've been. I, I think so, and I think one of the interesting things is this: like I don't know if it's a myth, but there there's a lot of like hey, how do you get your organization to be less top-down, right? And mm-hmm. I feel like everyone's always going to be providing you with ideas and what you can or should do in, in user experience in particular, right? That's just the way the human brain kind of acts. And it's not, 
malicious, right? It's just we think in terms of uh, solutions, right? And we've always been told, don't bring me a, a problem, right? Bring me a solution, right? So people <laughs> people are like that. So it's always your job in UX to kind of take that and work over time, um, you know, providing your research, demonstrating the value of that research so that over time, and this is often quite slow and gradual, this like could be a year's thing in, in a lot of companies where eventually when that's done enough, and if you do it the right way, people are coming to you and saying, hey, we're doing this project. We want to bring in some research to begin with. And if, you're, if you've got your head screwed on as a UX leader, you're actually looking at and categorizing and tracking some of the things that you've done in the past as a company and using those as case studies to say, here, we did this. We didn't do research. This is what happened. We did research for this. We found out X, Y, and Z. And that helped mm-hmm. us deliver this value or, or go in this direction or that direction, right? And that, that builds a, a ton of credibility and momentum, which kind of points to one of the biggest challenges that I see in this kind of agile thinking and trusting teams. You know, we had Marty Kagan on talking about empowered teams, delivering for customers in a way that benefits the business, which I, I love that model. I've never lived in it. Um, even as a, you know, I've been a product leader, I've been a techno- an engineering leader, I've been a UX leader, and it's almost always like, okay, what's, what's next? Um, and I find margins where I do the things that I think are right that are not on the list um, from my stakeholders. And so this idea of flipping the paradigm to empower teams is, is, is really an attractive. And I think that the, the kinds of tool sets that you're talking about are key to winning some of that credibility and that trust, because you are asking for a heck of a lot of trust to spend a lot of other people's money to go after a, a, a business opportunity. So what are some ways in which you do that in the early days? Um, to to deal with that fear and anxiety that is natural at the zero phase of of any of any new project or or enterprise. Yeah. Um, well, so one of the interesting things is when you're you're doing UX and you're doing that research. If you do it right over time, there's actually you, you build up information asymmetry, right? Like the UX team are doing the research is the leverage, right? It's like if you do it well, people are coming to you because they don't want their product to perform worse without doing it right so that like I mean, from you, a, you, you've spoken to more customers than they have right so at that point <laughs> that's exactly right that's exactly right and and sometimes it's not even necessarily even about speaking to more customers because you'll have folks on the front lines that speak to customers all day every day but they're doing yeah. it in a manner where it's very kind of task focused or they're appropriately focused on what they're supposed to be focused on right so sometimes when you take that data you pull back out from it and you look at it objectively or you look for patterns and themes and you're doing that in a manner that's actually scientific in nature, right? You get insights and findings that are backed by data in a manner that those folks that are speaking to people all the time might not necessarily see. It might not be super obvious, right? So I think even beyond that, you can bring that objectivity to the table to kind of drive your organization forward and again, gain that credibility. You can't listen to customer what customer support will tell you to work on. Um, their their opinion. You have to go to the data. You have to go to the quant. Um, what is driving support call volume? Not what is not what is annoying your support call reps. Because those are two different things. You'll get two very different answers when you when you do that. So it was my own interesting insight into. Wait, you're an executive who listened to the head of customer support. Great. You're going to tell me all about my defect rate. I don't need to hear about that. I need to hear what's driving volume. <laughs> um, that's a great example and a great point. And I think one of the interesting things is sometimes sometimes in product and UX, you hear people talking about 
oh, you know, we're being told what to do. We're, we're not being empowered, right? And part of it is in your own control too, right? For example, like sometimes you will have a department come to you with their problem. The onus is on you to dig in and understand what that problem is because sometimes you go beyond what they're requesting as a solution and you get deep, deep down into the root cause of that and then you say, hey, you know, actually, this is what we should be solving, right? It's, and, and, and when you do that in the right way, that department's not coming back to you and telling you, oh, we must absolutely do it the way we thought about it, right? Like, you've actually helped the organization at that point get to the root cause and you can solve it in a way that's, you know, scalable and, and maybe even a new opportunity that nobody was thinking about, right? That's right. That's right. That's where you prove, you know, you add value and, and then that builds that momentum that you need. Um, to substantiate your work going forward. I, I oftentimes will say trust is the currency of our realm. Once you have won trust, this sport is a lot easier. Um, earning that trust is is a hill to climb, though. And, that, and that's that's kind of why I'm, I'm pointing at some of these things, because I think for those in our audience who are even thinking about moving to a model where UX does play a more uh, offensive role, a little less defense, right, um, but is actually helping us crack the market, getting there can be really tough and really daunting. So... You know, it's a uh, you know part of our part of our hype intro for you. Uh, we pointed out that you've worked at uh, a number of companies, SMBs to Fortune 500 companies, and I'm curious your thought on size as a variable in this in this equation. Just are, are small companies just fundamentally able to be more agile than than larger companies, or, um, or, do, or do you think there's a different different way to look at this? So, you know, if you look at the research literature on this type of stuff it's it's hard to say that um small it isn't easier for smaller companies to be innovative right like they have less formal controls they have typically fewer layers typically less hierarchy you know it's just easier to make a decision in a company with 10 people than ten thousand people right but it's also not the cop out that i think the industry sometimes thinks right like it's it's it is still very doable and we see it today with certain companies for large companies to be very innovative right and there's lots of mechanisms that they can use to do that right um you know agile thinking again right like many of the things in that are 100 transferable like lots of large organizations because they have a lot of resources are sometimes not as critical in terms of assessing how much they should put into a new idea versus not, right? Can we do this as a smaller incremental test is something that any large organization can do, right? Um, measuring what happens when something is done is an obvious thing to say, but you will be surprised. I know you're laughing because you've been there, right? I know you've been there. You, you launched the thing. And everyone said it was table stakes, right? So nobody went back to even see if it did the thing that we thought it would do, right? So, or, or, you know, or even better, the entire business case was based on something, and we didn't even yeah. measure that because they funded it and they said, "Okay, move on, next." Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, hundred percent, absolutely. And that's one of the things with measurement as well too. It can give you that tool to question the assumptions of the business because you've now got some data to to talk about that, right? So, hmm. um, uh. Absolutely, I think larger organizations can can do this. For example, uh, Amazon when they were when they came up with Amazon Prime, they had an innovation objective: find an effective loyalty program. 
an engineer put a suggestion in the suggestion box for free shipping, right? And that led to additional discussions that formed Amazon Prime. You can do that in a small company. You can do that in a large company, right? So there's lots of different ways um, that organizations can compete, even if they are large. But I, but I do think, I mean, and I want to be careful for our audience, because I think some of the stuff that we talked about before, it's not harvesting ideas that is usually the problem with innovation. It's what you do with them and how you thoughtfully execute on them. And there's one aspect that we, we haven't talked a lot about here that I'm curious to get a little more thoughts from, from you on is one is, is validating that the idea itself has legs. Um, there's kind of a, an up, no, you know, yes, no, up, down kind of uh, facet to it that I think as an executive, you think, okay, if we're going to do um, testing, we're really looking for a go, no, go decision. But my experience is that it's that mental model. It's that additional texture. How does the user or the customer think about this product and its value proposition? And are we, are there any key points? You know, I, I talk about high stakes and low stakes moments in the product. Um, the way we think about it going in may not be the same way that the user does. And so it's so helpful if we can start to align our own thinking to, to the user or the customer. And that's going to help us build a better MVP and everything after that, um, because we're going to be just tightening up. Um, our, our, the richness of understanding that we have of how they view this space, uh, this, this space overall that our, our product is being hired for. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or how, how do you talk about that with executives, um, when you're trying to convince them in, in the ongoing value of user research in, in product development? Yeah. So, um, you know, to go back to kind of where, where, where your story began, right? Often you'll have a bunch of ideas, right? And you have to prioritize those ideas. You can often use your user data to help prioritize those ideas, right? You know, you can look at user numbers that interact with a certain experience, right? You can begin there often. And sometimes user experience is maybe too heavily skewed on the qualitative uh, side of things. The, the mm -hmm. quantitative research is just as important. So often it's a good idea to start there. You can figure out which qualitative research you want to do by finding what is the area that quantitatively is causing the most problems, right? You mm -hmm. can also, it, it's also worth saying that um, there are numbers and there are business cases, but stories and storytelling has a massive impact on motivating companies, defining their, their vision, vision and their mission. You might not always have the data and the numbers to come up with the the greatest, best, most awesomest experience, right? So journey mapping is a great tool that UX can help with, where, for example, you, meet a, you might identify through your, your, your research of ideas that, hey, look, actually, our, the biggest problem we're having right now, now is our sales process, right? That's where we see the most drop-off, right? So let's do a journey map. You can interview people to add that customer voice to the journey map. You can share that customer journey map with the entire organization. One of the most powerful things about journey mapping is it starts to give everyone a unified vision of what the company is doing. You'd be mm -hmm. surprised when companies, especially when they get big, they don't know what their own experience is, right? Or they don't That's see, right. like people work in silos, they don't see, hey, uh, you know, Johnny over here sends out the uh, onboarding email that says one thing, and Jennifer over here actually sends a follow-up email later on that's conflicting this, right? But when you're so big in those organizations, unless you do that type of journey mapping or look across the entire experience, that can get lost. So that's another Absolutely. key way that I think 
you know, UX can help tell the story, bring that customer view to what are the areas out of all these different ideas that we can actually work on to deliver the biggest value for the customer. Well, and, and uh, we just did a webinar on uh, on the commercial viability of an idea with uh, with Michael Rabjohns, who I know you know. He's our global head of user experience for Three Pillar, um, and a, and an able bodied researcher himself, um, which I'm excited about. That are, that our UX practice is led by somebody who has has rich research experience, and then also one of one of his uh, uh, lieutenants um, in Costa Rica, Lieutenant Stephen Cooper who's done a lot of, of UX research um, for various companies, including Accenture and, and um, us as well. But, um, but, one, but what, one thing that really stood out to me is that there's so many UX designers that are strong in interaction design and visual design and don't have the quantitative capabilities, um, very low interest in analytics or you know, really understanding how to tune analytics to get, uh, to get high quality uh, uh, user uh, journey mapping uh, in your product. Um, it's so much better to to see what they're actually doing, where the paths in the grass are rather than where the pavement has been laid. Um, so that can be really, really helpful, but I, I find that's in short supply. And then user research itself um, is actually, there's not a lot of UX designers that have that experience. And, and so that, so for, for those of you listening, that those are two areas to sharpen up on. Um, if you're just doing visual and interaction design, you're missing out on some really great assets in, in user experience. Now you have a, um, when we, in our prep call, we talked about uh, your background obviously quite a bit, um, and you have a master's in innovation, and you were studying specifically innovation in large-scale organizations. I know we touched on this a little bit already, but uh, and this line uh, stuck, sticks out to me, like, how do you how do you recommend people at enterprise companies get their elephants to become ballerinas? And uh, so I want to dig a little bit into your research focus, and, and what, what did you find in that regard? Yeah, I, I mean, look, you you see various techniques that larger organizations use to foster innovation, right? They, you know, you, you can attempt to make it systemic across your organization. Often when you get quite large, that becomes more challenging. So you will see some large organizations creating tiger teams, right? Like you'll assemble this team that will work on a project, solve a specific problem for a while. You'll probably take them out of the structure of your organization so that they're not stuck within the confines of your current thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You'll see some organizations with venture arms. This is prominent in in the insurance industry right now, where you'll have some of the larger, um, more traditional insurance companies, and they're investing in insurtechs. They're buying in that capability uh, to to get that additional uh, thinking beyond the confines of their own current structure, right? You could have um, disruption units. That's probably a, a little fancy for what they probably are in most cases, right? Um, but you can have a center of excellence in your organization where you're, you make the time, you create the focus on what should we be doing next. You create the time to manage that innovation process because I think that's where a lot of people fall down, right? They say, hey, look, to your point, they have the ideas, but they have no one there to go through assess the ideas, uh, explain to people why an idea didn't come through or did go through so that people in the organization don't eventually think that, well, there's no point in me submitting an idea because it just dies on the vine, right? Right. Um, So those are some of the techniques that larger organizations use at kind of like a macro level. And you see 
you, you can have it work across your organization. USAA is a great example of this, right? At one point, they did a study, and this is back in uh, 2018, and um, they solicited 10,000 ideas from their um, their employees. 800 patents they got out of that, right? Wow. A, a security guard had 25, right? This is a, This is a company, right, that is doing it right in terms of how do you set up that system so that you can kind of harvest uh, from, from your folks? Nike is another good example. Nike wants to work with the best. And guess what? The best are not always within your org- own organization. So Nike would go out and partner with other companies to bring that innovation and new ideas into the organization. So there's a ton of different ways to do this. Yeah. Well, and it, it's it's interesting to me the the challenge of I mean since we're talking about insurance is, is an industry that that you've been in for some time the the large scale operations are meant to de risk I mean managing risk is is commonly where it, you know the dominant theme and that can stymie innovation um, very very quickly um, so how how organizations find a way to both uh, encourage that kind of idea, risk taking, that is smart, and again, not all not all hypotheses are worth investing in. So, finding the high quality ones and making that investment without damaging your company's ability to manage risk very carefully, um, and that's that's an it's an interesting cultural um, friction, if you will, um, which which sort of uh, actually sets up really nicely. So, uh, we we have a little innovation or or experimentation that we're doing here with our uh, podcast, uh, having. Uh, chat GPT serve up some questions uh, uh, for you. Um, we asked um, uh, Chat GPT to, uh, um, yeah, basically look at your profile and uh, suggest some questions that we could ask you. So we're, we're going to give this uh, give this a shot here. So Chat GPT asks, um, how is how has agile thinking influenced the product design process in insurance, and what benefits have you seen as a result? Not a bad yeah. And I'm not going to lie to you, Scott. I did momentarily think before this that what I would do is I would go to ChatGPT, put your questions in, and get all my answers from ChatGPT, <laughs> and then not answer anything, right? Because if you're not going to put the effort in, right, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'll be more forgiving, right? Um, so thank you for flying uh, along. <laughs> um, so it, insurance is a me too industry, right? Mm. If you, if you watch it, you'll often see one insurance company comes out with this thing, now everyone else does, right? Examples of that would be things like, at one point, a couple of years ago, every insurance company had a ballpark quote, right? Instead of doing the full quoting experience, got less information, you got a, a ballpark quote. But those weren't like accurate enough uh, a lot of the time, and they disappeared, right? Because they weren't effective. But when they got launched, everyone and their mother was adding in a ballpark quote to their experience, people weren't looking at what the results were from a customer experience perspective. Like, is this actually a good idea, right? So that, again, is where the agile mindset comes in. You do, Yes, like, be aware and understand some of the ideas that can be coming from your industry, right? But you actually got to test those. Same with the early stage QR code uh, hype and all of that stuff, right? You And coming back a little bit more sensibly now, of course, right? But those are the things where agile thinking can really um, help you perform better, where you're you're really critically looking at ideas compared to the rest of the industry. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting you bring up QR codes because I, I pointed out to folks that QR codes did not catch on until the pandemic because the pandemic put every restaurant's menu behind a QR code. Yeah. And that's what made QR codes relevant. And without that moment in his, in human history, QR codes were already dying. Um, yeah. the, the few that had played with them, most users didn't know how to use them until they're at a restaurant and your, and your server is teaching you how to, how to pull up the menu. And now everybody knows how to pull up a QR code. Um, right. Right. Re- really an interesting shift in user behavior. Um, that that could be missed by an organization that isn't constantly learning and seeing that uh, that opportunity. Now QR codes are back on the table. They were they were dead four or five years ago. Um, I, I saw one drive past in a van once. I didn't know what I was supposed to do with it. Right? It was on the <laughs> <laughs> it down in your car. Trying. Yeah, it had no call to action. It was just like a QR code inside this white van. I was like, I don't know what you want me to do here, bud. <laughs> an invitation to. Find your camera or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so another question that uh, ChatGPT asked, as a director of product design, how has agile thinking influenced your approach to team collaboration and innovation? And what positive outcomes have you observed in terms of uh, creativity and problem solving? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because team culture is is got to be part of this as well, right? Yeah, and, and I'll go bigger than like my UX team here, right, on this, right? This is, uh, I think, part of like setting those those hypotheses that you're testing uh, encourages challenges, right, in the organization. And those challenges often harden up and, and make your your what you're going to launch or what you have launched better, right. And so I think one thing that agile thinking does is, if you do it the right way, it's not just one group in the organization that is is thinking agile, right. It's everyone, and so. You have product management pushing engineering and saying, hey, do we have to do all of this in order to get this outcome? You have people in the business saying, actually, are we measuring this? Like they can hold like UX and product accountable as well, too, right? Like, I don't know if this is actually measuring what we're trying to uh, understand or solve for here, right? So if your organization, like, and I would highly recommend actually, Lorana, doing a large scale across the organization training on agile thinking if you're serious about it so people have the the tools to know what everyone's trying to do but if you do that the right way then i think that is super helpful in terms of have fostering that culture of it's okay to challenge right it's okay to ask questions yeah well i one of the things uh because i I think that's absolutely key and i love it when a qa person brings me a, a feature you know back when i was leading product and says, look, I'm going to pass the ticket because the acceptance criteria is fine. But Scott, I don't think this is what we, well, this wasn't the spirit of what you were talking about during, uh, you know, and I'm like, this is great. And, and e- either way, like, even if the, if the, the implementation is totally correct, then it's an education opportunity for an interested person who's committed to our goals. And, and that's, that's a, its own win. Um, or it, wow. Yeah. Like we executed on the letter, but not the spirit. And we're completely missing the forest for the trees in, in the way we did this. Um, either one is really valuable ultimately to, to getting it right. And, and that, that led me to my, one of my mantras for teams is like, we should all be more interested in getting it right than being right. Um, to try to take the ego and the pride out and say, look, our ego and pride is going to be fed by shipping a better product. Um, being on a more successful team, not, not by having the best idea or the ones that get accepted. Um, we should have lots of ideas. We should have lots of debates because we care. Um, and and if, if you can foster that that kind of personal commitment, and then you're you can really really cook with gas. 
luckily you and I, Scott, we always have the right ideas, but I understand how other people outside of us, you know. That, exactly. This is totally medicine for other people to take. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, I just, I make it a, a rule not to have any ideas. I, I have nothing original. I, I just take other people's ideas and shape them. Um, <laughs> I'd make them better. Yeah, no, my, my creativity is low. <laughs> but um, but fortunately, I work with people uh, like you and Michael Rabjohns and, and ah, like, I, I think of all the all the ways in which I could have built better products in my past if I just yeah. had the asset. If I'd known then what I know now, um, gosh, I could have I could have spent all that money so much better. Well, Kevin, thank you. And we're gonna um, I want to just round things off with a little speed round, um, if you don't mind. Are you Are you ready? Uh, yeah, that sounds scary, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're relatively prolific on on LinkedIn, um, which is which is awesome. You have uh, over twenty five thousand followers um, as as we record this episode. And then this may sound somewhat self-serving, but I'm going to ask anyways, what, what's your favorite LinkedIn post of your own? Yeah, so there's one recently, and it, it's a myth that you should design experiences to be less than X number of clicks, right? Sometimes that comes mm-hmm. up, right? Well, too many clicks, right? And Steve Krog, who's a um, well-known in the UX space. Um, he's a titan. <laughs> he's, Don't make me he's, think. Yes, and... He has a great quote, and don't make me think, actually, which is, it doesn't matter how many times I have to click as long as each click is mindless, unambiguous choice, right? So it's all about just making it easy. I mean, that doesn't mean don't have 700 clicks on there, right? But it's more about making it easy than it is about limiting the number of clicks, which sometimes people uh, bring up. Yep. Well, there's that tension, too, between, like, prove that you made it better. And it's like, well, I reduced clicks from 10 to 7, so it's obviously better. Maybe not. Great one. Um, what would be the first three things you prioritize on the lingscar.com website if they came to you for help. Yeah. And for those that don't know lingscar.com, you should definitely look it up. It's uh, illuminous. It's flashing. It has so many different things going on with it. And unfortunately, my answer for this is I wouldn't change a thing. This is the best, worst website um, that I've ever seen (laughs) in my life. I'm pretty confident that um, they're, they're trying to get there. The only thing I could think of is um, maybe they should add more pop-ups and they should maybe play Never Going to Give You Up as soon as you uh, get on the page. Are, are you sure that the, so the sarcasm is coming through? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're, no, they, uh, check them out. They're absolutely awesome. Um, their their website is a visual offense uh, on, <laughs> on all your senses. It's great. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Uh, and rounding things out, um, <laughs> this may be tough to do in a speed round, but how do you avoid building the dreaded MVP or non-viable product? Uh, I have I have talked to a number of executives that are on the the receiving end of an MVP, uh, and yeah. they they are under orders to build a product they don't believe in, and it's it, that's a, that is the worst thing, worst experience to have. I, I I imagine you can you can imagine it. So so what are some ways in which you uh, you avoid that? Yeah, I mean, uh, fittingly, probably we're going to come back to research, right? Uh, <laughs> If can you like if you really think it's a bad idea, can you put it in a prototype? Can you get some feedback on it to show before this thing goes live that um, this is not something your company wants to have associated with their reputation, right? If you can't get that, you can limit the damage by doing A/B testing with a very small portion, so that you don't expose everybody to it, and you look at the results from that. You know, so I think the, like getting data to prove your point if if uh, a larger um, group is gung ho on it. I think can be helpful. 
One, one, one other trick that I've, I've added that has created the space for research has been to add a business milestone so that, and the, the, the catch line that I'll use is investment should follow confidence. If we're somewhat confident, then we should only be somewhat investing in this. Um, and so let's have a milestone where we decide to release another tranche of funding, you know, that's based on some sort of, of analytics, research, whatever. Let's do something. We can come up with that plan together. But if we have done nothing to improve confidence, then we probably shouldn't be deepening investment. I like yeah. Cool. Well, awesome. This is, uh, um, as, as I suspected, uh, this has been a great discussion, uh, Kevin, and I really, really appreciate you joining us on, on the Innovation Engine. Thank you so much. Awesome. I love it, Scott. Thanks very much for having me. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. Three Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about Three Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at threepillarglobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.